All right. Well, that said, let's let's begin today. Um, we were just laughing earlier. Here it is, finally April. We started in January. We're finally getting around to printing the Book of Mormon. Um, and as we move forward here, I want I want you to kind of be aware uh, of a couple of things that happens with this stage of printing the Book of Mormon. I always keep an eye towards, okay, the church is organized in April 6, 1830, uh, and President Moon did a good job of talking about that organizational moment. We are back probably about nine months before that, so now we're in the summer of, of 1829. And in the summer of 1829, the Book of Mormon, the, the, the uh, translation process ends about the first week of July. Um, there, we talk, as we talked about last time, it's almost like the Spirit can't be uh, constrained anymore. People are starting to show up. They're starting to have devotionals just using the manuscript. Um, uh, the word is starting to go out. People are flocking to uh, Fayette to try and learn more. Now as we get into September and, and Martin Harris finally makes the decision completely to go ahead and deed his land over to Grandin. Grandin then is going to go ahead and start bring, hiring people and bringing in all the material necessary, the paper and everything, to begin the publishing process. Now remember, what they're going to do with this publishing process, think about how this works. The actual Book of Mormon won't be bound until March 1830. The binding process will be about four weeks before the organization of the church. In the meantime, they will print a batch and set it here, and print a batch and send it here, and print a batch and send it here. So it's so if you walk into Grandin Store, especially up on the, the second floor, now you've got pages that are drying all over the place, you've got prior batches, um, and, and those batches ha uh, are happening as, as uh, Oliver Cowdery is, is taking from the original manuscript, he's doing the printer's manuscript, and then with, in concert with somebody else, usually Hiram, he will then walk to the printer's press, he will hand them that, that um, copy of the, the printer's manuscript, they will typeset all day off of that printer's manuscript and then Oliver or Hiram will then take it back to Manchester at night. Why are they doing that? Yeah? I guess so that not all of the documents are in one place at one time. Right, because of their experience with the lost 116 pages and a fear that somebody's going to try and steal them. So that means that Hiram or, and or Oliver will be there during the day while they're typesetting. They will then take it home at night. And then as, they, as more is ready, Oliver will translate more onto the printer's manuscript. And then they, will, they continue to work in these bundles and groups and then they will print them, they'll bring them, they dry them, then they'll set them aside and then they'll work on the next part of the book. So that means that this now becomes a very public process. Anybody coming in and out of the store is going to see this process going, it's now real. It's now real. It's, this thing is happening. It isn't Joseph Smith the money digger. There's a book coming from the gold plates that nobody could really track down, except for guys are now running around saying they saw it. Uh, but now you start to have this stack of manuscripts that, that are sitting there. Now, it's obvious to me that uh, how many copies are in the first printing? 3,000 copies. Okay, but no, five thousand. Five thousand. Three thousand dollars. Five thousand copies. They printed far more than this. Why? Because people keep showing up. Uh, let me let me give you an example. During this process, there's a man by the name of Thomas Marsh. Thomas Marsh is in uh, Massachusetts, and he and and he just feels like he should. Um, like, like he needs to go to upstate New York. He doesn't know why. Uh, he goes as far as uh, Rochester. Take the Erie Canal. Erie Canal is now running. Take it all the way up to Rochester. Spends a couple of days in Rochester. He's still a little bit lost. Take, comes out, gets off at Palmyra. 
and he starts hearing words about this and immediately they say yeah it's the Smith he goes down to Manchester bangs on the door Hiram is there and Hiram is exercised and he says I, I hear about this the the Golden Bible I want to know more I'm interested in everything Hiram will then take him up to the Grandin store take Brother Marsh up there he will then read and he will then give uh, Brother Marsh about 16 pages of the 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 first part of the Book of Mormon uh, Brother Marsh will take it home uh, back to Massachusetts he will show it to his family they'll read it together they will believe it Marsh will then leave his family come back to be baptized uh, he will then become what in the church the, the first president of the Quorum of the Twelve Okay, but he's really excited about this and it comes off of 16 pages of the, of the printed manuscript now and that's all he has to work with okay there's another man that shows up out of Canada he's heard he's sensed he's feeling he comes in they do the same thing with him they give him a stack of manuscript pages well not manuscript printed pages he takes it back home believes it prays about it, wants to be baptized, he gives it to his, his neighbors, the Hydes. Okay, uh, this is how Orson Hyde ends up joining the church. Another, uh, one of the first apostles, uh, gets it because of the, the printed, unbound yet copies of the Book of Mormon. Okay, you start to get a sense of, the, of the, the steam starting to pick up and so people are getting more and more interested and they're starting to study off of what little bit of printed Book of Mormon manuscript pages they have available to them okay it's like this is happening now it's a thing yeah was there any sense that people were they ever afraid that people were going to break in and destroy yeah. what had been printed I think that was always the fear. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why you have... Joseph isn't anywhere in town. He's not wanting to stir things up. But that's one of the reasons why Oliver and Hiram particularly are there watching over. Martin Harris is there a lot. Just trying to keep an eye on things. Uh, I think there's also a sense that, that they know that Grandin isn't really sympathetic with what's in the book. But he's printing it. So it's really kind of Grandin's on their side. But they have also made a pact among everybody in Palmyra, in Palmyra. Nobody's buying this book. Nobody's buying it. So it's going to, we'll let, we'll let this thing just kind of die. Um, now, there is one little element to that. Yeah. Why did Joseph Smith piece of I'm not sure I understand. Jo well, uh, hang on to that and I'll, 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 I'll tell you in a minute why it is Joseph isn't really there. Okay. Uh, however, there is, there is a man who is there. Um, here it is. In the process of printing all of this out, there is a man who had been a judge uh, and an attorney, and he started a fledgling newspaper called The Reflector. The Reflector is just kind of a local newspaper and he, and he makes an agreement with Grandin. Grandin is doing all of this work on the Book of Mormon during the week. Grand, uh, Cole, Abner Cole uh, is going to come in on the weekends and print up his Reflector. Now, he is around enough that he's having, a ha he's having conversations with Hiram and, and Oliver and maybe Martin. We don't know who all he's talking to. Um, now, he's going to write a satirical piece uh, on October 7th, 1829. Um, and it's satirical, but it gives us some interesting information. It's amazing the stuff you can learn from non-members, even in their attacks that give you some idea about what's going on on the ground. So in October 1829, uh, he writes this. The New Jerusalem Reflector, 
states that the building of the temple of Nephi is to be commenced about the beginning of the first year of the millennium. Thousands are already flocking to the standard of Joseph the prophet. The Book of Mormon is expected to astonish the natives. Now, at this point, only the first few batches of the Book of Mormon have been, have been printed off. So some of the last part, including probably 3rd Nephi and stuff, has not yet been printed. Now, as you look at that little blurb, what is it that, based on just Abner Cole, what is it that these early members of the church are talking about? What is important to them? What, what's going on here? First of all, that there's going to be a temple. They are aware that there is going to be a temple. He sees it as the temple of Nephi, but a sense that there's going to be a temple. Okay. Now this is, remember, this is like 12 years before there's any proxy work. So we don't know what's in the temple, but there's going to be a temple. And where's the temple going to be located? New Jerusalem. In New Jerusalem. So not only is there going to be a temple, but there's going to be a New Jerusalem. What else are they, are they hearing from these early members? What, are, who else, what else is Abner Cole hearing? That they are this will herald the coming of the millennium. Now stop for a second. So so the people that are flocking to this and reading this and having revelations from God in the first person to people and there's a prophet that is translating records and here comes a gold Bible and there's going to be a temple and there's going to be a new Jerusalem. What do the people here believe is about to occur? The second coming. That's what they're talking about. This isn't just another church. They're talking about bringing forth a new era. The coming of the Savior. And, and if you're joining, if you're Thomas Marsh, if you're Parley Pratt, you're going, I'm part of a work that's going to bring forth the second coming. Well, that's exciting. It's not just another church. This is a movement. This is, this is amazing. This is what they're talking about. Yeah. Did people like would this make people in Palmyra more likely to buy? Less. Oh, less. And do you think that they were concerned at all with the last part of that statement? It says thousands of people, possibly natives, are going to walk. Not in Palmyra, but where? Missouri. Missouri. They're not so much worried because these guys are going to go. Uh, these guys are going to go preach to the natives, not the Iroquois and not the Mohawks, but they're going to go all the way out to Missouri to do that, and it will really get them excited in Independence. It's one of the reasons why the church is driven out in 1833 um, out of Independence is really because there's a sense that the Mormons are mingling with the Indians, and they're going to bring in the not just slaves. They're afraid they're going to bring in slaves, and they're all going to br also going to bring in the natives, bring in the Indians, and it will really rile them in Missouri. Yeah. Was there talk about Missouri in this time? Not yet. Not yet. This, even though they're talking about it here, the revelation to Oliver Cowdery is about a year away, and we'll talk about that in just a second, where he's going to be told, go out to the borders of the Lamanites, which is the border of the country, it's like we have the United States up to Missouri and on the other side is where the Indians live. It's the Wild West out here. Yeah, Dan? Um, was he being sarcastic? Oh, very. Said Joseph the prophet? Yes. Think of that, doing a tongue-in-cheek. But, but, but that's why I say it's helpful even in non-member writings or anti-Mormon writings. You can, you can read through and see what the discussions were. So he's being incredibly sarcastic. We'll see how sarcastic he is in just a second. Okay. Yeah. You know, uh, going a little bit before this part here, when Marsh and others were spiritually impressed and they decided get up and act. Yeah. Are there evidences that there was a lot of, I don't know right how to say it, spirituality going on in the country or the region? Uh, was there act, spiritual activity other than 
Well, that's a great question. He says, is there a sense of other spiritual activity happening at this moment? This church at this moment was not the only millennial movement on in this area. There were a few groups. The Quakers were there, uh, there where they believed that the second coming was imminent and so there was a stirring up. Think about all the work that had happened in the burned out district from all the preachers coming through. They stirred everybody up to read their scriptures but now where do you go from there? Okay, So even as far as Massachusetts and all there was a sense of because I don't want to go too far into the historical side of this, but remember, this is America, dang it. The War of 1812 has just happened. We are on the forefront of the world, and it's, it's new, and it's incredible, and this is America, and we have divine destiny to bring it to everyone. So there was just this sense of, if that's, the hap- if that's going to happen, what that will bring is the second coming. So they weren't the only one. But you know what? Nobody else had a gold Bible. Nobody else was receiving revelations from God in the first person. This was way different. This was a shift up from anything that was out there at the time. Okay? All right. So... This is, uh, this is October 7th, 1829. Um, so you get a sense that, that everything is kind of being uh, printed here over the next few months. Okay, we talked about this, the hides, the, the marsh. Um, uh, Pomeroy Tucker who is Grandin's brother-in-law, starts talking about the fact that dozens of people from Palmyra, Mason, uh, Brighton, Pulteneyville, Fayette, Farmington, were all being given printed pages. Talk about great marketing. <laughs> you know, yes, the Book of Mormon isn't printed, but we're going to start giving you little bits and pieces and everything. There, so there's interest being stirred up. Great marketing. We're going to talk about what the sheet of paper looked like, how the pages were not in sequence because of the way it had to be folded. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you've ever had a chance to go into any of those printing presses and you see kind of the pages upside down and all, so until it actually folds and is bound, it's kind of a surprise. It really is. Okay, now, so here they are. They're all printed in here, and now we get into December. And now you have more of it, and, and uh, the aforementioned Abner Cole sees a little financial opportunity here. To sell the reflector. And so uh, what happens on January 2nd, uh, 1830, is the very first public printing of the Book of Mormon. And it comes in the reflector. (laughs) January 2nd, 1830. And he will, rather than publish it under his name, Abner Cole, he will he will publish it as under a uh, pseudonym O. Dogberry. <laughs> okay? And what he does is he starts printing the Book of Mormon. He takes, he takes the typeset that's already sitting there and he just rolls out the reflector and away he goes to start sp- and starts printing the Book of Mormon. It's for this very reason that Joseph had sent Martin Harris in the previous six months to go get the patent. And he got a, he got a U.S. patent. They were trying to get a Canadian patent. But it's for this very reason that they got the U.S. patent uh, so that uh, Cole couldn't do exactly what he was doing. Um, this will bring Joseph Smith back to Palmyra. And there will be almost a fisticuff in the middle of the store. Because Joseph is going to kind of uh, get up in his face. Uh, Abner Cole will throw off his coat. And is like, let's go. I'm going to keep printing this stuff. And he's going to go, no, then I will bring in the law. There is a copyright. You're not allowed to do this. Cole's an attorney. (laughs) He knows that... Outside bluster and blow, he, Joseph has the law on his side. 
Okay, so there's gonna so he can only push so far, and the fact that Joseph is gonna push so hard, uh, he actually then agrees to step back a little bit, and he stops publishing uh, the Book of Mormon in the Reflector. What does he do? Well, it's almost it's almost sillier. It's going to be a little bit hard for you to read, but I'll, I'll try and... Uh, you can't read that? Okay, good. This is actually the reflector, and it's going to come a few weeks later. And he's going to... He's going to start... I wonder if I can... There we go. See it right there? Yes. He starts the book of Pukey. <laughs> And there's this fabulous story about uh, Walter and the magic circle and they're, they're sacrificing roosters uh, in a dark grove called Manchester. Uh, and it just kind of goes on and on and on. And finally then it crosses over. And he took his book and his rusty sword and his magic stone and his stuffed toad and all the implements of witchcraft and retired to the mountains near the great Sodas Bay where he holds communion with the devil every day. And now the acts of the magician, how his mantle fell upon the prophet Joe Smith Jr. and how Joe made a league with the spirit who afterwards turned out to be an angel, how he obtained the gold spectacles and breastplate. Will they not be faithfully recorded in the book of Pukey. So, <coughs> what Abner Cole is going to do, he will serialize a story of the book of Pukey for the next few weeks uh, in the reflector. And it's kind of loosely based on the Book of Mormon with all kinds. He, he's kind of a, he, he's, uh, he's a good writer <laughs> for his time. He's, he's got a pretty good fantasy mind. Uh, uh, and he just drops it in the middle of that and then he just kind of goes on to the, everything else that he's talking about. Anyway, that's, that's the Book of Pukey. It's the first kind of attack against the Book of Mormon. Uh, and it's coming from O. Dogberry, who is really Abner Cole. Hindsight isn't all press. What's that? Hindsight isn't all bad press. And I think it ended up propagating absolutely it just still was out there what who wouldn't want to the Book of Mormon comes out and I'm sure you're now going to be kind of curious especially if you read the first part the reflector it isn't like because remember an amazing thing has happened for the people of Palmyra they kept looking at the Smiths, and here's Joseph Smith, the money digger, and he's just a kind of a, we're going to pretend that he's kind of a ne'er-do-well, and he's just kind of deluded and everything, and, uh, and guess what? Here comes the Book of Mormon, and we start to read it, and it, and it sounds like Scripture. And, and the, now you're having to start to look at Joseph in a totally different way. They actually see him as more dangerous than they saw him as a, just a silly money digger. Tim? I was just going to say, Orson Scott Card yeah. did something similar where he wrote, I don't know what it's called, but it's like Return to Earth series. Right. And it basically parallels the story of Lehi and Nephi and all of that in their journey from wherever they were <laughs> to Earth. Yeah. You know, and. Uh, so, you know, a little bit of creative license, you can do that, I think. Okay, now, let me shift gears just a little bit, because I'm, I'm going to jump a little bit now. We've got, um, so the Book of Mormon is finally bound and, and bound in March. Now it's ready for, for uh, to be purchased at the end of March, and now they can go ahead and organize the church in April 6, 1830. The Lord had kept saying, don't organize the church till you have the Book of Mormon. Okay, now we have the Book of Mormon. Now the church gets organized. <clears throat> At this point, this, this really is where Joseph turns to David Whitmer, and he says, I think I'm done. I got this church started. 
I translated the Book of Mormon. I don't know what more the Lord has for me. I think I'm, I think I'm pretty well done. Boy, is he about to get a surprise. Yeah. So, so now, so now let's, let's get to June, a couple months later, June 1830. Where does he go from here? Well, let me, let me, um, let me preface what happens next by asking this, this question. How do we get scripture in the church? How do we get scripture? What's that? So Revelation comes to a prophet. Prophet then writes it down. Now, what is the prophet hearing? The word of the Lord, right? Well, one of our beliefs is, is that there must be like some eternal scroll of Heavenly Father and here is, here is carved in stone, here is God's word. And he's going to give it to a prophet right off of the carved stone and you're going to get a piece of that. Okay. Did but but let me let me step back a little bit. Did the Savior ever alter Scripture? To the Nephites. Let me give you let me give you a couple examples. I'm gonna hop here to Matthew five. He's actually gonna alter two bits of things that have been seen as scripture. Matthew 5 from the Sermon on the Mount. 38. Ye have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Where'd they get that from? Mosaic Law. And they got that piece from the Mosaic Law from Leviticus. How did they get Leviticus? It's the fifth book of Moses, isn't it? Yeah, so, so this was revelation given to Moses by who? Jehovah. Jehovah. <clears throat> Jesus. So here we have a case of Jesus changing his own scripture. Yeah. And we don't, we don't know whether it had been translated incorrectly or not, but it is in the purview of a prophet to, to uh, under revelation, change scripture as it sits. If, if it's going to be more tailored to the people around, or it was mistranslated, there's a variety of reasons why a prophet might do it, but a prophet has the purview of changing scripture. Let that one settle in for a sec. Yeah. Just a comment about the scripture real quick. It's a foreshadowing of his, after his sacrifice, of doing away with all. Yeah. He's given him a higher law here. And the second comment is, we just saw that the last two days, where things that we have held to be Yes. Now uh, have been altered. Forever and ever, we will have we will call we will do home teaching. We will call it home teaching. Dang it! There will be a high priest quorum. That's what it says, and it will stand the test of time through the millennium until the prophet says, "No, we're retiring that." Oh, prophets can do that under revelation. Here's a here's a case. Uh, by the way, those of us who were uh, just with us at Qumran, here's another one. Verse 43. Ye have heard it said, you have heard that it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Guess where he's quoting from? The community scroll at Qumran on the Dead Sea Scrolls. So one of the evidences that we have that the Dead Sea Scrolls, the information from the Dead Sea Scrolls, was had that it was known among first uh, the time of Jesus. Jesus is going to quote from the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Sermon on the Mount. This comes right off of the community rule scroll. Um, you've heard it said. Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good for those that hate you. Okay? I will change it. 
However, at Qumran, the Essenes got what they got. I'm now going to alter that because I can, because I will. Either because it was translated wrong or because now it needs to be updated to fit the, the people at the time. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. So, that then, so we get back here and we give you a couple of quick examples. BNC 35. A commandment I give unto thee, Oliver Cowdery, thou shalt write for Joseph, and scriptures shall be given, even as they are, where? In mine own bosom. The scriptures and revelation is what's in my heart. And I may give it in one form to one group, I may give it in another form to another group, based on their needs and where they are at the time. And sometimes I will give it, if men change it, I may come back and fill in the stuff that was left out. Okay? And... Joseph said this repeatedly, section 128. I might have rendered a plainer translation to this, but it, but it is sufficiently plain to suit my needs, or serve my purpose, as it stands. Whoever showed Joseph Smith that you could change scripture? Jesus. <laughs> what happens when Moroni comes that night to tell him about the location of the plates? He, he keeps saying, and he quoted this scripture, and this scripture, and this scripture, but then he says, but he quoted it differently than now stands in the Bible. Moroni was changing scripture. Specifically, he was talking about uh, the coming of Elijah. He changes it. How about when John the Baptist comes and to give them the authority and baptizes them, and then he says, and then the scriptures were opened to our eyes, and we understood things much more plainly. One of the things that happens is that prophets can interpret, open up, and change scripture. Still line upon line. It is line upon line. And we needed that at that moment. And then the prophet says, this is actually more what this means. Or this version of it fits this better. Our general conference was full of a lot of that just now. Yeah. Well, even as individuals, we personally read the scriptures. We often take different things Sure. the scriptures from each other because we're, on, we're in different places. Absolutely, and if it's coming from the bosom of the Lord, and, and we're reading the scripture today, and it fills us, and we see a different interpretation, but it applies to us, in a sense, we're being filled with some of that prophetic ability to alter scripture for our benefit. So, yeah. There was a great insight article about that a long time ago, about how at different times in our lives, it's scripture scriptures might mean completely different things. I read my patriarchal blessing yes. today versus when I got it in 1981 and it's it has transformed in meaning to the present. I, I think about my patriarchal blessing. I'll open it up and I go, how'd that end up there? Yeah. I had no I I didn't know that that thing was there. Uh, Brother Lauritsen, who was our, our patriarch, would say a lot, yeah, sometimes things will be there that you didn't see initially. He believes that sometimes they might be altered. Adam? Oh, correct me if I'm wrong, there's certain principles in which the foundations of the universe are based on that even God has to follow. Everything else is flexible. Yeah, yeah. And how he says it and how he does it may, al may be altered. Okay? So, th this sets the table now for what happens next. Can I just make one little point for you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What you're saying here really brings home what my bishop of about 20 years ago once said. He said, if you gave me a choice between having scriptures or having a prophet, I would take the prophet because he can generate all the scripture we need. Yeah. Exactly. And not only that, the prophet can interpret even what past... Scriptures are nothing more than what past prophets have said. 
So sometimes in general conference like this weekend, we're getting a re-update of things that Prophet said in 1950 and 1930 and 1820. They're interpreting that and we have to be ready to say what this Prophet says is the interpretation for what we need now. Even if it contradicts some of the scripture that some of the things that Prophets have said in the past. The word of wisdom is a good example of that. When it was given, not by way of... Yeah, right. Uh, but uh, as the saints got used to it and able to live it, then it became a requirement. Sure, absolutely. Okay, so, so here's what's about to happen to Prophet Joseph. June 1830. Suddenly he gets this this revelation and he begins to record it and what's pouring out of him is Moses 1 and this isn't a little one this is a long one and it is and it is what we now have is Moses chapter 1 where Moses goes up on a high mountain he sees the Savior he's given the vision everything is opened up to his eyes then Satan comes and he, he discerns the difference between Satan and God and he recognizes that he is a son of man and now that I know that man is nothing I mean that beautiful thing that we have as Moses one that we love and revere in, in uh, the Pearl of Great Price but just the fact that this revelation comes what does this say to Joseph Smith? I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. <laughs> I thought I was mostly done. Apparently not. <laughs> not also, and and not, not only am I not done, what is now my next responsibility? To do what? Translate the Bible. Translate the Bible. Well, hold the presses here, literally. Tell me how presumptuous this is for this kid in his early 20s. What would it mean to say, wait a minute, I now have another job and that is to translate the Bible. But you've got to wonder too if he wasn't thinking, am I a type of Moses? I mean, I'm the modern, okay, dispensation is starting with me. Yes. No. Yes. No, that had to be there we go. Heavenly Father wasn't going to leave him dangling, going, "You're just going to be a scribe for the next 50 years." Right. I would think there would be some kind of, but I do have to read you this. Yeah. Technically, Moses was the first person with a tablet downloading data from the cloud. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's good. Yes. No, but but I think that's a great point. Joseph would, in, in Joseph's own evolution of how he sees himself, I, I, I brought the Book of Mormon the way Moroni told me to do it. I have organized the church because people are re wanting it. And now I've done it. I think I'm done. Wait a minute. Now I'm stepping into a different role, and that is a role of what? Revelator. Seer. Prophet. And my job is now to bring forth scripture and begin to correct what's in Genesis. <laughs> I'm going to go back and correct Moses in Exodus. Well, that's presumptuous. But now th this, this job is there. And in fact, I think when he was translating the Book of Mormon and Nephi is saying there are many plain and precious truths that have been taken out, I don't think Joseph Smith is sitting there going, oh, and I'm the guy to do it. I'm the guy to bring the back. But all at once, now his vision of who he is just took a major step forward that says, I'm now going to be responsible to translate the Bible. How was this received in general? <laughs> Do you know, I think that there were those close to him that saw him there faster than he saw him. Remember, Joseph's, we're about to see it too. There's going to be another handoff to another mentor in a sense. We're about to go from Oliver Cowdery to Sidney Rigdon. 
Joseph always saw somebody that was older and more educated as smarter than him, and he had a tendency to be swayed by them. First of all, it was Martin Harris, then it was Oliver Cowdery, uh, even um, the Whitmers, uh, Josiah Stoll, his dad. Everybody ab ab above him was older and more wise, but now all at one, but now people are looking at him and saying, "I think that I think the people, the believers around him, were going." Yeah, that's what he does. You forget Joseph, you keep writing revelations from God in the first person. I God said, do this. They're already seeing him there. Joseph is the one that's having a hard time getting caught up. But this is a new iteration for him. This is this is a bigger deal. How long will it take him to do this translation? About 3 years. Uh, he will he will do it all the way almost up to the time they go to uh, do the uh, Zion's camp to go rescue Missouri take about three years a couple of years after that he will add the book of Abraham uh, and we're gonna get another step forward okay Isn't that amazing all of this all this stuff and 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 so um, we're not going to go through the, the Moses one, but this is now what his this is now his job. We know that he bought that Oliver Cowdery bought from Grandin in October of 1829 a Bible for a dollar seventy-five. <laughs> he buys this Bible and he will start to mark it. And most of the Old Testament, as he marks it, he will have he will receive what we call the Joseph Smith translation. We'll talk about that a little bit more at another time. But when he gets to the New Testament, he's using some Bible commentaries. He's, the New Testament, he actually goes fairly quickly on. The Old Testament, he really dives in, and he's changing a lot of things. And that's what we get in the... We start learning things about Enoch, for instance, and, and Melchizedek that were never had uh, in the Bible. Scott? I just started back to school, and it's a Christian university. It's all online. And one of their things that they say is that, you know, the Bible is the only infallible scripture. And I, I went, I work with a bunch of guys going to the Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary. That's a huge, huge tenet. Oh, yeah. Is the Bible is infallible and it's all there is. Yeah. I have a hard time boxing up Jesus in a book that's 2,000 pages long that was written 1,500 years yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that. Because that is the other presumptuous thing to people outside of the faith. That said, All of these are we're drawing from Protestant Christianity into this new church of Christ. And for all of them, the Bible is sola scriptura. It is the authority. It is the sole source of scripture. You don't add. You don't take away to it. And the presumptuous to say, I'm going to add to the Bible all kinds of things. Is a, is a massive step, yeah. yeah. They say that, but yet there are so many translations. Yeah. <laughs> right. It is sola scriptura, but let's take all the gender stuff out of there, yeah. And all these different religions have their own interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I was told by one, it was just he and I on a job, and we had a very, very good discussion. There was no malice. It was just, you know, how can this, how can that? And he said, so you're suggesting that 70 people in the Nicene Creed all sat down and came up with this Bible that 70 people all got together and it, it's not all correct? And I said, well... 300 years after the fact, by yeah, the way. How do you explain 3 billion people that don't believe in Christ? Does that mean... That they're wrong. That you know they're right because there are so many. Yeah, that's a challenge, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Yep. Even though the writings of the prophet we know are scripture, doesn't it not become scripture to the church until the church accepts it as a whole? Yeah. And they they agree that this. This will be scripture, or this will be added. Yeah, the church has got to vote on a canon of scripture. Absolutely. I mean, there's still a there's still a wondering. There was a concern. Um, there's a there's a, a chunk of the church, um, especially on issues of uh, on gay issues, that are really kind of fearful that the church is going to canonize the proclamation on the family. They're kind of fearful of that. 
uh, and keep wondering with conference is this the, is this the conference where we canonize the proclamation on the family uh, that will get some blowback if that if the church decides to do that um, I just thought I'd show you this is just give you a one of the beautiful things about the Joseph Smith project is you get to see the original documents this is the original document given to Joseph in uh, early June 1830 and and uh, Oliver Cowdery is scribing uh, this the word of God uh, which which came unto Moses at the time Moses was caught up into a high mountain so it, it's, it's just fun to see kind of what the original documents look like <laughs> you can see the we're trying to page this, tape it together, making sure this doesn't tear. Yeah, it's so great. All right. Okay, we got about, we got about 15 minutes. Okay, so here's challenge number two. So, so now the church is organized. Joseph has begun the translation. He begins to see himself involved in this uh, translation process. He's going to start to work on this a lot. Now comes the first kind of... The, the, up to this point, the church has been attacked on all sides. Uh, we're gonna, by the end of 1830, they're going to have to seriously think about moving to Kirtland. Uh, and we'll talk probably more next time about um, Oliver Cowdery's trip out to Missouri that takes he and Party Pratt and Zebedee Coltrane and uh, Peter Whitmer through Kirtland where they're going to see uh, Sidney Rigdon and, and now Sidney Rigdon's going to get excited and away we go. Uh, prior to all that though uh, doing all of that uh, now they're going to have a they're going to begin to have, prepare for a conference of all the members of the church in September of 1830 ahead of that they have a problem the church has been attacked from the outside by non-members since day one and, and threatens of mobs and all those kind of things uh, now Always, always, always is our biggest danger from detractors of the church. Is our biggest danger on the outside of the church or on the inside? Yes. Why inside? Why is that more dangerous? Because they can do the most damage. Why? Why can they do the most damage? Because they, they know um, what's going on. They know the weaknesses of Joseph Smith. They know, you know, and I don't know, it's like that you're closest with can hurt you the most because they know your vulnerabilities and which you know the language and all those kind of things. Yeah. yeah. I think when uh, the church or anybody is attacked from the outside, the body of the church tends to pull together and, and become right. or to fight against it. But when it's internal, it kind of destroys the foundation. I think that, that's, that's very true that, that when we're attacked from the outside we can circle the wagons we can pull in and, and to a certain extent as a church we do have kind of a persecution complex don't we? It's one of the reasons why it is that we've had a hard time sometimes being as transparent as we don't want to give our anti-Mormon friends any more ammunition so this idea of being transparency is a new thing we've got to get past our persecuted selves because we're afraid of the attacks from the outside yeah? if, if Joel Smith was kind of like externally validated uh -huh. by those around him. Would those who were his friends and people that were loyal to him turn against him? Oh, maybe. Then, then maybe that makes him doubt his calling. And, and when he waffles, the church waffles. Yeah, anytime that uh, I always worry a little bit about when uh, when members of the church are being too celebrated by the outside press and stuff like that is like be careful, be careful who's heralding you. Okay, so we are so we we tend to handle ourselves fairly well when we're attacked from the outside. It's the inside attacks, and this attack is subtle, and I don't know that Joseph saw it coming. Okay, as we get ready for the September conference 
This is the incident with, with Hiram Page. Joseph is down in Harmony. Uh, Hiram uh, is a family friend and he marries one of the Whitmers. Uh, and he discovers, in I think around July of 1830, he gets a seer stone. And he starts to have revelations on the seer stone. And there gets to be a lot of revelations. And Oliver is staying up in Fayette. I think he's sweet on one of the Whitmer girls as well, I think. Um, and, and Hiram is receiving revelations, and all of the Whitmers are believing. Because in a sense, Joseph hasn't been an autocratic kind of guy. You know, everybody's supposed to get their own revelations, and Hiram's getting revelations about the second coming and all kinds of things, okay? And they're pretty excited about it, okay? So now Joseph has a problem. There is a kind of a, another kind of revelator rising up in the church. And how is he going to handle this? And, he, and rather than attack it directly, he's not quite sure, he lets it go, he prays for counsel. And that's what gets us, um, let's go to section 28 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Because now in this fledgling church, just a few months old, the Lord has got to reiterate the structure of this. I think we just saw the beauty of the transition from one prophet to the next with the seamlessly. Well, it wasn't necessarily ready to be seamless in 1830. Especially when you've got somebody else with a seer stone and they're getting revelations. And it's going a little bit contrary to Joseph Smith's revelations. Which one do we believe? Well, maybe everybody gets their own seer stones. That's how it works. Revelations come by seer stones. Okay? So Hiram's getting it. So here comes this revelation. Uh, and this is going to come in early September 1830. Behold, I say unto thee, Oliver, and he's going to give it to Oliver. And I like the way that Joe, the, the way that this works, the way the Lord is working on this. Rather than going directly to Hiram, they're going to go through kind of the the hierarchy that's been set up, because Joseph is the first elder. Who's the second elder? Oliver Cowdery. Okay, and Oliver Cowdery is the one that's being bothered by all of this stuff among the Whitmers. So it's uh, it's beautiful that this revelation comes to Oliver. Behold, I say unto thee, Oliver, that it shall be given unto thee that, that thou shalt be heard by the church in all things. Thou shalt teach them by the comforter. Oh, oh, but, um, let me take one step back. I leave one, left one thing out. One of the ways that Joseph knew that there was problems in Fayette with the Whitmers is that he gets a letter from Oliver Cowdery commanding him to change part of section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. I, I'm afraid you're bringing in priestcraft, and I command you in the name of the Lord to change that line of the revelation. So Joseph is really taken back, and when he goes to investigate what's going on with Oliver, it turns out that it has to do with the seer stone and, and all of this. Okay, So there is a challenge right? What are we going to do here? How do we handle this? Well, here comes this revelation. But verily I say unto thee, no one... Verse 2, shall be appointed to receive commandments and revelations in this church, except my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., for he receiveth them as who? Moses. I love the analogy. The Lord is going to set this up beautifully. He's going to start receiving revelations as Moses. Now, I kind of like this because it also gives you an idea how Moses receives revelation. That's kind of cool. Okay. Verse 3, Thou shalt be obedient unto these things which I shall give unto him, even as Aaron. Boy, did he just, did he just lay a structure on Oliver. Let me put it in terms you will understand. He is Moses, you are Aaron. Oh, that's how this works. The revelations come to Moses, Aaron is the... Spokesperson. Yes, Oliver, you are more eloquent than Joseph. Yes, you are more educated. Yes, the church needs to hear from you. 
He is Moses, the stutterer. You are Aaron, the spokesperson. Oh. Now, thou art led at time by, by the comforter to speak or teach, but thou shalt not write by way of commandments, but by wisdom. Now, he does put a little caveat out here. Because this is the thing, this is the area of excitement among this group, remember? And now behold, verse 9, I say unto you that it is not revealed, and no man knoweth where the city Zion shall be built. Want to guess what Hiram Page's Searstone is talking about? The New Jerusalem. No man knoweth where the city Zion shall be built, but it shall be given hereafter. But I say unto you that it shall be on the border by the Lamanites. Back then, there's this, this sense of their understanding that the Lamanites of the Book of Mormon were just on the outside of the United States, sitting over there in the Oklahoma Territory. Okay? But I say unto you, it shall be by the borders of the Lamanites. Thou shalt not leave this place until after the conference. What's, what's being tipped off here in September? Uh, there's a mission. And it's where? To the Lamanites. And part of going to the mission on the Lamanites is what? The location of the New Jerusalem. Well, that's pretty cool. I also think, and this is more the pra my practical brain, right after the conference, if Oliver is really kind of bothered by this, what's the best thing they could do for Oliver? Send him on a mission. <laughs> Get him out of town and, and give him a great assignment to go do. Hiram Page with him. Yeah, it'd be nice if they'd sent Hiram Page. It's interesting that I, I would have thought like you, I would have thought they sent Hiram Page. They didn't. But, it, but at least we're getting all, Oliver seems to be more of the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Did Oliver have that sense though that that Joseph was trying to get him out of town? I don't know. This is my own opinion. Oh. This is my, I just think for, it's a, from a practical standpoint, it works. By the way, by the way, by the way, what now does, Joseph, does, does uh, Oliver Cowdery have in his possession? The brown seer stone. Joseph gave him the brown seer stone after he completed the translation of the Book of Mormon. From that point, Joseph would value his white seer stone more, and he gave he gave Oliver the brown seer stone according to uh, David Whitmer. So there is a sense that he is to be a revelator, uh, and I'm going to send you on a mission to the Lamanites and to find. Um, the city of New Jerusalem. Uh, I won't take the time to do it, but I, I, I came across just a really interesting document. Um, that's too bad it would take me too long. I may try between now and next week to pull this one up. There is immediately after the conference where it is announced... We'll go to 29. Um... Uh, No, I'm not, I'm not going to go right to it. I don't want to get you seasick here. Okay. Right after this conference, they're going to appoint Oliver and Zebedee, uh, Zebedee Coltrane and Peter Whitmer and Party Pratt to go on this mission to the Lamanites uh, and to do two things. We're going we're to preach to the Lamanites and we're going to discover the, the place of the New Jerusalem. Uh, in the Joseph Smith papers is a beautiful contract that Oliver writes to the other three brethren and he says, I covenant with you that we will go on this mission, we will serve one another, we will find the place of the New Jerusalem, and we will place a pillar on that spot where the temple will be built. And I covenant with you to do it. 
And then there's a response from the other three brethren saying, We covenant with you, Oliver, that we will go with you on this mission and we will find the New Jerusalem and we will place the pillar on the, uh, the New Jerusalem there and we will preach the gospel to the Lamanites. There was this sense of this impending moment in time where this four, these four brethren were going to go find the New Jerusalem and plant the pillar where the temple would be built. Did they do that? Absolutely did on the temple lot in Missouri. Yeah. When, when did the missions, missionary concept start with Joseph Smith? We had the Catholic missions, which are totally different. Yeah. This type of missionary. Work. What was already happening? Remember, if we, if we when we go back all the way, like for instance to uh, DNC four to Joseph Smith Senior, and he says, "Now a glorious work is about to come forth among the children of men." He gives those kind of blessings to David Whitmer, to Peter Whitmer, to. Uh, uh, group of people and he says go preach the gospel and they're going to they start to go out and do some preliminary missions uh, back in these days even in Kirtland uh, if as soon as you got baptized especially during the winter if you if you harvested your crops in October and now they're in you might take November and December and go on a two year mission they'd go out and preach for a while and then they would come back you mean a two month mission two month mission did I say two years? <laughs> Close. Back then, they would go like on a two-month mission. <laughs> and they could get those things done and be back in time to plant in the spring. So it, almost from the beginning, the, even those that were given the pages of the, the printed Book of Mormon before it was even bound, would then take it and start preaching to their neighbors and everything. That right out of the chute, they were starting to teach. In, in, a, in a very cool way. So, uh, all right. So to finish up on this one, and then then we'll be done here. Uh, For if thou art led by the Comforter to speak or teach, thou shalt not write by commandments. Uh, now, eleven, Oliver. Thou shalt take thy brother Hiram, page, between him and thee alone, and tell him that those things which he hath written from the stone are not of me, and Satan deceiveth them. There were a number of uh, brethren who watched the way Joseph handled this in the conference, and he handled it as a loving uh, administrator. He didn't call anybody out. He didn't push them. He just worked with them, long-suffered with them, and by the end of the conference of October or of September they were back in unity and all on the same page uh, not the Hiram page but the same page <laughs> hey <laughs> ting, ting. Um, and they were all work they were all now working together and now he could actually send these four brethren off on this mission and this mission will change the church on a variety of levels, this these four missionaries now going out in October will now change the church. We'll pick up next time. So, yeah. In the meantime, with all of this going on, the Book of Mormon is still being printed. Yeah, yeah, it's still coming off the press. But for the most part, the vast majority of the the the, the five thousand copies is a lot. But the vast majority of them were already coming off the press, enough that, that people were being able to take uh, book copies of Book of Mormon out. Uh, Martin Harris was, by the way, Martin Harris was supposed to get half the proceeds to help pay the land back. It never really happened. Uh, partly because Martin Harris was a horrible salesperson. <laughs> Martin Harris would run around town with a whole handful of books trying to find somebody to buy them. And nobody was buying. Uh, and if, if you're taking a copy of the Book of Mormon out to Massachusetts and you get your $1.75 for the Book of Mormon, you don't necessarily run it back and give it to Martin Harris. So he, he was as sunk as he thought he was. Yeah. How was this council received by Hiram and which oh in the conference, yeah. Oh, Hiram went well, went well. Joseph, because Joseph didn't dictate. Joseph talked to them long enough to well, the. They said the love returned, and they were all basically on the same page by the end of the conference. What did Hiram do? Stop using the seer stone. Okay.
so we got so we will start uh, next week uh, with the, the the boys landing in Kirtland uh, Sydney Rigdon is now going to be the one to step up and we will begin to make preparations to move the hub of the church from from that stretch in New England from from Harmony up to Palmyra and now begin to gather them first of all to Kirtland and then begin to send them to Missouri um, it, one of the things I just love about watching this though it is like um, sometimes I think some of the uh, Marvel movies that have come out whether it's any one of these from Captain America and Thor and stuff they always talk about the origin stories and it's like how did Spider-Man become Spider-Man and how did Thor become Thor and well this is how did the church become the church <laughs> and you see these early beginnings of it and you, you watch them uh, handle the early difficulties and then they start to explode out and suddenly because this little infant church in the next three months will double its size when, when Parley hits Kirtland. And they will double it in six weeks. So we're going to get to watch this thing really kind of take off. So, um, Barry, my testimony that's true has been a historic weekend with conference. And it's fun to watch everything happening with conference this weekend and kind of see the beginnings of the first conference in September 1830 where they're trying to deal with the seer stone. So uh, bury my testimony that's true and leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. in our hearts for the things we have learned the changes